0: Thank you for your warm welcome. Uh, my name is uh, Jonathan, or Johnny, as uh, I'm better known by it. Only my mother calls me Jonathan. That's, that's when I'm in trouble. Um, so it's good to be with you this morning. Um, as you can hear from my accent, I'm not from around here. Uh, I like to tell people I'm from Texas, uh, but nobody believes me. Okay, so I'm actually from Arkansas. Uh I'm from uh, Belfast in Northern Ireland and have been living in exile for far too long. So uh, that's why the accent sounds a little strange to your ears. Um, I'm just looking at, uh, yes, so on your um, outline of the Science and Faith series, uh, my topic this morning is looking at the historical Adam. Adam, where art thou? Or perhaps better we would say Adam... Who art thou? Now, I'm uh, playing on the words of the King James Version uh, when God spoke to Adam in the garden. The first words that God spoke after the fall to Adam come in the form of a question. Where are you, Adam? Or as the King James Version put it, Where art thou, Adam? And the connection between the fall the fall And Adam's disappearance in the bushes is relevant for our lecture this morning because in recent years there has been some pressure to deny or reinterpret the historical Adam. Uh, The pressure to deny or reinterpret Adam has come both from outside and inside the church. Outside the church, scientific findings seem to call into question the bible 's account of mankind 's common and natural descent from Adam inside the church, various positions have been adopted to try and accommodate the scientific evidence uh, William van dudivard pretty of a cool surname there uh, William Dan van Dudivard in his book the, Qu- the Quest for the Historical Adam has a helpful taxonomy for assessing different views of Adam that are currently held in the church. And he articulates three main positions besides the historical traditional position. He calls these uh, evolutionary biological process one, two, and three. Okay, very creative. Uh, Here's the first one, evolutionary biological process number one. Origins by theistic evolution with divine impartation of the soul. So in this view, humanity came into existence through God's use of the evolution of a species from ape to hominid to human using ordinary providence. The evolved man received the image of God by a sovereign act of imparting the soul. This act of impartation was an act of special creation which changed the hominid, the ape man, into a human being made in the image of God. And this impartation of the soul occurred about ten to 15,000 years ago with a hominid pair. And then the race of hominids died out, and we had the human race coming from this hominid pair who had had the, the, the soul of God uh, imparted into them. Uh, proponents or close variants to this view are C.S. Lewis, uh, Derek Kidner, uh, Tim Keller, uh, Greg Davison, and uh, Francis Collins. That's the first view. Second view, uh, theistic evolution with divine relationship. It's very similar to the first view. Humanity comes into existence through God's use of the evolution of the species from ape to hominid to human using ordinary providence, and then this special creation uh, was sealed with the image of God by coming into special relationship with God. Okay? So not so much a divine impartation of the soul into the hominid, but more God begins a relationship with this hominid uh, pair. This Neolithic pair, again, ten to 15,000 years ago, they gained God consciousness. Okay? They started to have a spiritual life With their creator. The change was not so much ontological, the impartation of the soul, but relational, the beginning of a relationship with their creator. Some proponents of this view, uh, one main proponent is Dennis Alexander, who is from Cambridge. He's the founder of the Faraday Institute in Cambridge. So that's the second view. Okay, divine uh, theistic evolution with. Um, divine relationship. The third one is theistic evolution with divine revelation or retelling model. Similar to the view above, humanity comes into existence through God's use of evolution of a species from ape to hominid to human being using ordinary providence. And then God revealed himself to a large group of early humans, possibly about 150 thousand years ago. On this view, Adam and Eve are not historical people. They are literary figures, symbolic of the group of hominids to whom God begins to reveal himself. Um, Proponents of this view are people like Peter Enns, uh, Daniel Harlow, and Dennis Lamourou. So, those are the first three positions. A fourth one is what's called the naivete and agnostic position, and that is that people say, well, we'll just never know. It's naive to be able to say we can ever really discern who the first human beings were, uh, and so we'll just never really know. We need to remain agnostic on it. Does it really matter where we came from? So, as you can see, Darwin's theory of evolution, has made the very simple question that God asked in the garden, Adam, where art thou? Rather complex and confused. Was there even such a man called Adam? Does it matter? And if there was, who was he or what was he? So, what are we to do with these options before us? Well, some argue that God has given us two books, Uh, The Book of Nature, General Revelation, Science. The Book of Scripture, Special Revelation. And both must be read together. And we've got to find some sort of compromise, some compatibility between science and Scripture. And, of course, that is true. God has given us two books, the Book of Nature, General Revelation, Science, and the Book of Scripture. But as evangelical Christians we have always believed that there is an important qualification. And that is that the book of Scripture, special revelation, has priority over the book of nature, general revelation. It is a reformational principle of sola scriptura, that the Bible has the final authority. And so it's the same when it comes to the question of Adam. The Bible must be the final determiner of who Adam was. John Calvin, the uh, Genevan reformer, put it like this, that we ought to read the world and science and general revelation with the spectacles of Scripture on. So Scripture must become our spectacles through which we read science. So let's put the spectacles of Scripture on. And uh, look at what scripture has to say about Adam. I've got uh, four points this morning. The first is Adam was a historical man. Adam was a historical man. When it comes to the historicity of Adam, scripture is both conspicuous and perspicuous. The opening chapters of Genesis, which are historical narrative in genre, present Adam as the first man... Formed from the dust of the earth, Genesis 2, 7. With whom God entered into a covenant of works, chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. And from whom God formed the first woman, chapter 2, 18 to 25. Together, this first man and woman named Adam and Eve constitute the fountainhead of the human race. Three genealogies in the Bible find their origin. In Adam, Genesis 5, 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse, chapters 1 to 8, and Luke chapter 3, verses uh, 23 to 38. All three genealogies in the Bible find their origins in a man called Adam. Jude also uses Adam as the beginning point of biblical history. He describes Enoch as the seventh from Adam. Uh, Jude verse 14. The Apostle Paul speaks of Adam as the one man from whom God made every nation of mankind, Acts 17, 26. Jesus refers to Adam and Eve, without naming them, as the first married couple at the beginning of history, Matthew 19, verse 4. And Paul employs the order of their creation, Adam first, then Eve to establish the role relationships of men and women in marriage and the church. Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Timothy 2. Paul, uh, Adam, is also used uh, in biblical arguments to teach issues of sin and salvation. Hosea, the prophet in the Old Testament, compares Israel's transgression of the covenant to that of Adam's transgression of the covenant. Hosea 6 verse 7. Paul compares and contrasts the person and work of Adam pre-fall and post-fall with the work of Christ. In Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15. In Romans 5, Paul speaks of Adam in his post-fall state as the one man through whom sin and death came into the world. And in his argument, Adam is understood metaphysically. That is, as a real man, not metaphorically. That is, just symbolically. Through Adam, sin, a real thing, and death, another real thing, came into existence. If sin and death are metaphysical, then Adam had to be metaphysical. So whatever Adam did affected the rest of the human race that were united to him in physical descent and federal covenantal headship. In this sense, Adam was a type of Christ. Now, for anything in the Old Testament to be a type, it first has to have an historical reality. Old Testament types only qualify as types if they first relate to real historical things. So the Exodus is a type of salvation in Christ. Christ saves us from our enemy, He saves us from the penalty of death. That is there in the Exodus, the enemy of the Egyptians, the uh, angel of death in the night of the Passover. All of that is symbolic of the gospel of Christ. But it can only be typological of Christ if it is first historical. Same with Adam. Jesus is called the second and last Adam, which means the first Adam had to be historical. So, Scripture is very clear that Adam was a historical person. Scripture does not encourage us at any point to read Adam as a mythical figure or as a metaphorical figure, a symbolic figure. Rather, he is presented to us conspicuously and perspicuously as a real historical man the first living man of the human race. So that's the first point this morning. Adam was a historical man. The second point is Adam was a created man. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 reads, Then God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, this is a key text in the debate over whether or not Adam actually existed. Uh, But more than that, it's a key text in the debate over how, or how, as you say here in America. Before before the 4th of July, 200 years ago, it was pronounced how. Uh, But since you sought independence, it's now how. So, it's also an important text on how, how, Adam came into existence. Okay, and it gives us a few boundary markers. Francis Schaeffer uh, spoke of outlining freedoms and limitations on theological issues. And I think Genesis 2 7 is a text that gives us some very clear boundaries in relation to the creation of Adam. And within the boundaries set by the text, we must allow an element of freedom as to the exact mechanics of how Adam came to be, but the text does give us some general mechanics of how Adam came to be. A number of things should be noted, and there's four sub-points to this point, all right? So Adam was a created man, and here's the first sub-point. Adam was formed from the dust of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. In other words, Adam was formed from pre existing material. The key word here is the word formed, uh, Yatzar in the Hebrew. Uh, because in chapter one, verse twenty seven, it says that God created man, bara, different verb in the Hebrew. Okay, so in chapter one, three times it says He created man, bara, bara, bara. Alright? Now, In Genesis 1, when God creates bara, he creates ex nihilo. That's a Latin phrase meaning out of nothing. But here in chapter 2, verse 7, when God creates man, he doesn't create him ex nihilo, out of nothing. He creates him from the dust of the earth. So the creation of the world, in Genesis 1, verse 1, when God creates everything, Matter, space, time, energy, etc. He speaks and it is created ex nihilo, out of nothing. But when he creates Adam, he creates him immediately. Not immediately, but mediately. He creates him from something, from the dust of the ground. Now, the word for dust occurs 103 times in the Old Testament And in nearly every case, it refers to fine, dry topsoil of the earth. In some cases, the word dust is used for rubble, or a layer of clay, or a crushed idol, or ashes of a burned sin offering, or gold dust. In a few cases, it may refer to the grave. But its general and dominant reference is to soil, to the earth. And that's the meaning here which is given to us by the qualifying phrase, from the ground, dust from the ground. God formed the first man from pre-existing soil from the ground. In other words, from the basic elements of soil, like chemical elements such as nitrogen, oxygen, calcium, water, etc. All the elements that make up the soil in your garden. Now, some people want to say that dust here is simply intended as a metaphor, and we shouldn't press the literal button too much. Dust is a symbol of mortality, says John Walton, who teaches at uh, Wheaton College in uh, Chicago. For John Walton, dust here is not a reference to real, actual, physical dust from the ground. Rather, it's just a metaphor for mortality, We came from dust, to dust we shall return. Our life is finite. One day we will die. That's all it means. Now, at one level, he has a point. Dust can speak of mortality and frailty. Psalm 103, verse 14, God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So being made of the dust does remind us of our mortality and frailty. But we mustn't force a false dichotomy between the basic meaning of a word and its symbolism. For example, the seventh day in the creation week is an ordinary day like the other days, but the way it is described without evening and morning shows that it was pointing to something else, an everlasting day, a day that went on forever. It was a real day. We know it was a real day, Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath, one day in seven, So it was a regular day of the week, it was a real day, and yet it was symbolic of another thing, of another reality, the eternal life of rest. Same goes for other physical objects in Genesis 2. They are real, but they point beyond themselves to spiritual realities. The physical tree of life symbolizes eternal life. The physical Garden of Eden symbolized paradise. The physical river flowing out of Eden symbolized the source of life. So if we are prepared to take those words, uh, tree, garden, river, as real physical things that are symbolic of other realities without doing away with their physicality, their reality, then to be consistent we must do the same with the word dust. Dust here is a real physical object. That's its dominant use in the Bible. 103 times, and the predominant use in all of those cases is dust of the earth, soil. Okay, But yes, it can be symbolic of mortality, but that doesn't mean it wasn't dust. Okay. So what people like John Walton try to do is they try to force a false dichotomy between the physical and the symbolic. Okay, And that's what we need to... Um, guard against. We are, at the end of the day, walking specimens of dust, and to dust we shall return. Just as Shakespeare said in his play Hamlet, oh, what a piece of work is man? What is this quintessence of dust? So yes, dust may be symbolic of our mortality and frailty, but dust is dust. Okay, the Bible's very clear we were made, or Adam was made, from the dust of of the earth. That's the first point. As a created man, he was formed from the dust of the ground. Second, Adam was formed from the dust of the ground as the first man. I know that sounds obvious, okay? But it needs to be said. This is what the New Testament affirms. One Corinthians fifteen forty-five to forty-seven. Paul twice calls Adam the first man. In fact, he says the first man was from the earth, a man of dust, a direct allusion to Genesis 2.7. So notice how Paul is reading Genesis 2. Paul is reading Genesis 2 literally. Adam was the first man formed from the dust of the earth. That Adam is the first man is confirmed by Paul calling Jesus the second man in 1 Corinthians 15. So Herman Bavink, a Reformed theologian, put it like this, what Adam and Jesus Christ have in common as the first and the last and the second Adam is that they both have no ancestors, only descendants. Okay? They both have no ancestors, only descendants. Jesus is the second man. He has no ancestor. Now, he came from his mother Mary, but he does not have a human father. And neither did Adam. So Adam was formed from pre-existing material, the dust of the ground, as the first man. Now, some evangelicals like to say, yes, he was the first man, Homo sapien or Homo divinus. But he may have been a hominid before he was a man. Okay, He may have been this Neanderthal farmer, this ape man. God may have chosen this hominid infused a soul into him or started a spiritual relationship with him, but he was in existence before in another form. That is how some people like to try and find a compatible view between science and the Bible when it comes to Adam. But I think that is ruled out simply by the fact that the text plainly says God formed the man from the dust of the ground, not from a hominid but from the dust of the ground. To take dust of the ground as symbolic of a hominid is to stretch biblical symbolism beyond the bounds of common sense. But even if for the sake of argument we allow dust of the ground to have this broad symbolism of perhaps a hominid, there's something else in the text that tells us this couldn't be the case, which brings us to the next two points under this point, Adam was a created man. He was a created man formed from the dust of the earth as the first man. Third, Adam was formed from the dust of the earth as the first man in two stages. In two stages. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The first stage... Is the forming of the human body. God forms the man, and he is described as having a pair of nostrils. So the man was first an inanimate body. That's the first stage. And then the second stage, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, how God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, we're not told. Okay, we don't know. If God blew on the dust uh, or just came down in some physical form and blew into his nostrils doing some CPR on him, okay, we don 't know. What we do know is that God breathed into him the breath of life. Now Genesis one verse 30 says that the land animals and the birds also have the breath of life in them. Uh, in this sense, we humans are no different to land animals or birds fish. We're all living creatures. We all have the breath of life in us. But we must make a clear distinction here. Francis Schaeffer said that once you blur the distinction between man and animals, then lots of other things start to get blurred, like moral and medical ethics. So we must keep a distinction here because the Bible gives us a distinction. Yes, it says in chapter 1 that the fish, uh, the land animals, sorry, and the birds of the air have the breath of life in them. But it never says that God breathed into their nostrils the breath of life. It only says that in relation to Adam. In other words, when it comes to the creation of man, there is an intimacy here with how God creates man. He didn't do this with the land animals or the birds. So this is the second stage. First, he makes a body from the dust. The body is not living. It's inanimate. It's got no life in it. Then God breathes into it the breath of life. In other words, in this moment of bringing this inanimate body to life, God made man in his image to be a rational and moral creature. That is the moment Adam received his soul. So that's the third aspect. And only at that point did Adam become a living being, which brings us to our final observation under this heading, Adam was a created man. Adam was formed from the dust of the ground as the first man in two stages, dust to body, breath of life into the body. And then, fourth, he became a living being. Now, that verb, become, is very, very important. It's the key word here in this passage. When God was playing in the dust, making Adam, Adam was not yet living. After God had formed Adam from the dust, Adam was still not living. Only after God breathed the breath of life into him did Adam become A living being. Genesis chapter 1 verse 20 and 24 says that the fish of the sea and the animals of the land were already living creatures by the time God made Adam. This is why Adam could not have come from a hominid. Because if he had come from a hominid, then he would have already been living. Do you see that? Hominids were already alive if they existed. They were already alive. But the text says that it was at the moment of breathing into his nostrils the breath of life that Adam became a living being. It doesn't say he was renewed as a living being. He became a living being. Prior to that point, he was not living. Now, if we're going to take the text seriously, then that is another boundary marker we must respect. Adam was formed from the dust of the ground as the first man in two stages, and then he became a living being. So those are four boundary markers that the Bible gives us. Remember, the Bible's our final authority for all matters of faith and life. And so here are the four boundary markers. God formed Adam from the dust of the ground, real dust. He formed him from the dust of the ground as the first man, He formed him from the dust of the ground as the first man in two stages. And fourth, then he became a living being. And these four boundary markers culminate to make this second point this morning. Adam was a created man. He was a created man. So we've seen two things this morning. Adam was an historical man. Second, Adam was a created man. Number three, Adam was a covenantal man. Genesis 2, verse 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, when I say that Adam was a covenantal man, uh, what I mean is that Adam was created by God in a distinct act of creation, and then he was brought into a covenant relationship with God. The two acts are distinct. A covenant with creation must not be confused with a covenant of works with Adam. Okay? Uh, Notice that God creates Adam outside the garden in verse 7. And then he puts him in the garden and gives him this command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that distinction is very important. And that distinction gives us this idea of covenant. Covenant is the context in which God relates to Adam and to all mankind. Now you'll notice the word covenant, uh, berit in the Hebrew. It's not. I know you're following in the Hebrew there. Um, The word covenant doesn't appear here in verse in chapter two at all. So why am I speaking of a covenant at all? Well, just because a word doesn't appear doesn't mean the concept is absent. So, for example, the word marriage doesn't appear in chapter two, but we all agree Adam and Eve got married. Uh, The word sin doesn't appear in chapter 3, but we all agree sin happened in chapter 3. So just because a word doesn't occur doesn't mean the concept is absent. Same with covenant here. Uh, There is a covenant even though there's not the word used. Now what is the definition of covenant? What do I mean? Well, I think the best uh, short definition is a life and death commitment between two parties involving promises and obligations and most often sealed with an oath. A life and death commitment between two parties involving promises and obligations sealed with an oath. The best way to illustrate that is marriage. In the Bible, marriage is called a covenant. It involves a life and death commitment between two people, where they make promises and accept responsibilities in the relationship until death do us part. And it's the same here in chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. What is formed here between God and Adam is a life and death commitment which involved promises and obligations. The obligations are obvious enough. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat Of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So there's the obligation. Uh, This tree, uh, it was an obligation towards obedience. Uh, This tree represented, if you like, a probationary test for Adam. To see if he could attain righteousness by perfect and personal obedience to the law of God. In this regard, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represented a radical test of obedience from Adam. And this was the obligation placed on him. If he obeyed, he would receive eternal life. He would have access to the tree of life. One way of putting it is God asked him to fast from one tree so that he would then be able to feast from another tree. Okay, fast from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that he could then feast at the tree of life. But he could only get access to the tree of life if he obeyed in relation to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So with the obligation came a, came a promise and, if you like, a threat. Or a threat and if you like a promise. The threat was obvious. If you eat from the tree, you're going to die. That's the punishment in this covenant relationship. It's life and death, Adam. This commitment I'm asking for you is a life and death commitment. That was the obligation part. Uh, But the promise of what God would give if he did obey is not as clearly stated. We have to infer it from the surrounding context. I've just said that if he fasted from one tree, he would get to feast at another tree. Now, God never actually says that. He doesn't say, if you obey me, you'll be able to eat from the tree of life. But it's inferred, and let me show you what I mean. Uh, At the first sight, the command in chapter 2, verse 16, suggests that Adam was free to eat from the tree of life. Do you see that? You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. So it sounds like he's actually got access to the tree of life if he's saying you can eat from every tree. But look back at chapter 2, verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The same phrase, every tree, in verse 9, is used in chapter 2, verse 16. Okay? But the narrator distinguishes every tree from the two trees in verse 9. He says, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And then he says, oh, and there were two other trees, by the way. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Those were in the middle of the garden. Okay? So it seems like this phrase, every tree, is referring to every tree except these two special trees. Okay, so that's the first thing. And then come with me to chapter 3, verse 22 to 24. The Lord God said, this is after they've fallen into sin. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, let us re- l- now lest he reach out his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden, to work the ground from which he was taken." He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So, does that sound like he's been eating from the tree of life? No. The key word there is in verse 22 also. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life. Did you see? So the text is sort of saying he hadn't eaten from the tree of life yet. Okay, Let's stop him eating from the tree of life like he's also eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Okay, which was, I won't go into it, but it was an act of grace for God to put him out of the garden. He he put him out in order to make him savable. If Adam had eaten from the tree of life in a fallen state, he would have eternally been fixed in a fallen state. Okay, so putting him out of the garden was an act of grace. But the point I would simply want to show you is that there was the promise, the implicit promise that if he had obeyed in not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would have had the right to eat from the tree of life. But he forfeited that right by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because he forfeited it, God said, I can't have you stretching out your hand and eating from that. You don't deserve it. And even more than that, if you do eat from it, you will be eternally damned. And so he put him out of the garden. Okay? Um. All right. So you can see here that Adam was placed in a covenant relationship with God. Let, Let me put it like this Eternal life in the beginning was conditioned upon the perfect obedience of God's covenant representative. Eternal life was conditioned upon the obedience of God's covenant representative. And by eternal life, I don't just mean life that goes on forever. I mean life of a different quality, in a different realm. Life based on justification before God, imputed righteousness, that entails progressive sanctification and glorification of our perishable bodies. All of that is what Adam had the opportunity to win for us. If we accept a covenant between God and Adam, then we can say that Adam was an incredibly important person. He was, besides Jesus Christ, the most important person in the world. Because what was resting on his shoulders was the opportunity to win for us everlasting life. But he didn't. He failed, and he was thrown out of the garden. But the point I'm trying to make is, when I'm saying that Adam was a covenantal man, is that he was not a private individual. Okay? He wasn't a private citizen in the world. Adam was a public man. He was a covenant head. What Adam did was like an earthquake that sent its... Uh, qu- sh- quake all the way through the human race. Um, He was not a private man. He was a public man. Uh, This is seen in this concept of covenant. When Adam acts, it affects everyone who descends from Adam. Romans 5.12, Through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. Therefore, death spread to all people because all people have sinned. How did it all happen? Adam. It's like a domino. He fell, we all fell with him. Uh, We can see that he was a public man, uh, a representative, even in the way he uh, is approached in the garden after he sins. Notice when they sin, Adam and Eve, by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, their eyes are only opened after Adam eats. She eats, and their eyes aren't opened to their nakedness. He eats, and their eyes are opened to their nakedness. Okay, so he's got some effect on her. She doesn't really have an effect on him. There's a covenant headship going on here. And also, when God comes looking for them in the garden, uh, he doesn't call to them, Adam and Eve, where are you? Adam. Where are you? When there's sin, he goes looking for Mr. Adam, not Mrs. Adam. Why is that? Because he's the head. He's the covenant representative. He's a public man, not a private man. He sinned not as an individual, private man. He sinned as a public, collective man on behalf of the human race. We see this also in chapter 4 and 5. When Adam's children are born... Uh, Cain and Abel. None of them are given the chance to live in Eden. But why? Why not? They didn't sin. Why couldn't they have been born and go into the garden their kids, and play for a bit? Right? Because Adam's sin affected them. You see? He, he was a public man, a covenant representative. And then Romans 5, as I said, makes it clear through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and therefore death Spread to all men because all men have sinned. Uh, Paul goes on to say, uh, Through Adam came sin, uh, guilt, condemnation, and death. 1 Corinthians 15, As in Adam, uh, all die. Adam acted as a public man, as a covenant representative. So, that's the third thing. Adam was a covenantal man. So he was a created, uh, historical man, created man, covenantal man. But the question is, so what? Right? What's the big deal here? All right. What are the consequences if we do not believe in a real, historical, created, covenantal man called Adam? Well, I think a number of consequences follow. Uh, three big consequences for denying his existence or even allowing. Evolutionary biological origins to his existence. Let me pause here and give you an illustration, and some, maybe some of the young people here can—well, uh, it's an illustration for everyone. But imagine a giant. Okay, and when I say a giant, I mean a big giant. Imagine his foot. Okay, is the size of your church building here? Right, just his foot absolutely huge giant. And imagine this huge giant who reaches up to the heavens standing outside in your car park. And around his waist is a huge belt. Now, I don't mean a little thin belt like I'm wearing. I mean a a, a boxer's world title boxing belt. Huge, big, thick belt around his waist. And on that belt are millions upon millions upon millions of little hooks. And attached to those hooks are people, tiny little people holding on to those hooks. Now imagine this giant walking down Brandy Vine Village, okay? <laughs> and as he's walking, he trips and falls. What happens to everybody who's hanging onto his belt? They trip and fall with him, Okay? And the Bible presents to us two giants, Adam and Jesus Christ, the first man and the second man, the first Adam, and Jesus is called the second and last Adam. And that is the theological structure of the whole Bible, two Adams, the first Adam and the second Adam. And people are attached to their belts. And the question is, whose belt are you attached to? Are you attached to Adam? Because if you are, then it is sin, guilt, and death. If you are attached to the belt of Jesus Christ, then it is righteousness, justification, and resurrection life. Because that giant fell, he was slain on the cross, and then he rose again. And everyone attached to him by faith die and rise with him. Okay, so here are the consequences. So, so hopefully you can see the significance of Adam. Okay, you cannot do away with Adam. Okay, in order for the Bible's theology to work, you have to have a real historical Adam. Otherwise, Jesus doesn't make sense. So let me show you some consequences. And so here's the fourth point. Adam was a consequential man. Consequential man. In other words, if you do away with him, there are various consequences. Number one, no Adam, no human dignity. No Adam, no human dignity. The unique and special creation of Adam, distinct from the other creatures in the animal kingdom, is vital, not just preferable, for maintaining human dignity. Human dignity is based on the doctrine of special creation, of man as distinct from the animals made in the image of God. We are not just homo zapien, wise man. We're, we are homo divinus, divine man, made in the image of God. What sets us apart from the animals is that we are God-like. We are image bearers of God. We were made for relationship with God. We were made to be holy, righteous, knowledgeable. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. And this can only be so if our origins lie outside the animal kingdom in a unique creation from the dust of the earth. Now, some evangelicals wish to argue for a unique creation of man while at the same time holding to some kind of evolutionary biological process in our origins. I mentioned those at the beginning. God took a hominid and he did a special creation on the hominid. He infused the image of God into him. People like Derek Kidner, John Stott, Tim Keller. Or God started a divine relationship with a hominid. That was a special creation. But even on these schemes, there are problems. Because Adam and Eve were not fully human for the whole of their existence. If they were living creatures, hominids, they were not fully human for the whole of their existence. And that impacts discussions concerning the fetus in the womb. Here's how William Van Doodyvard puts it. If our ancestors, under divine sovereignty, became human at some point after they began living, why should it be any different for an embryo that has not yet developed into a mature human form? See the problem? You start creating problems with the fetus in the womb if you do not have a special creation of Adam at the beginning. The other thing is when people say to me, well, I believe that God infused his image into a hominid pair 15,000 years ago, I want to say, well, could Adam have turned round and ate one of the hominids the next day? Because they're not human. Could he have killed one of them and ate them. Okay, Now you're into some tricky business because people are saying, well, the aboriginals in Australia, the American Indians here in North America, if they didn't have the image of God fused into them, but this hominid in middle Africa did, what are you saying about the aboriginals in Australia and the North American Indians? Are they not human beings? Okay, and then you have to do some gymnastics again to try and make it, oh, no, 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 but they're all made in the image of God. But did they descend from Adam? No, they didn't descend from Adam. They sort of all had the image of God infused in them at the same time. Okay? But the Bible says, Acts 17:26, from one man God made every nation of the earth. The Bible is very clear. Okay? So that's the first consequence. No Adam, no human dignity. Second, no Adam, no human sin or guilt. No Adam, no human sin or guilt. If there is no historical Adam who sinned by a tree and broke covenant with God, then there is no original sin passed on to us, and we are not guilty of anything. Uh, we cannot play around with Adam and think there are no consequences for our doctrine of sin. Uh, Richard Gaffin, a former professor at Westminster, puts it like this. He says, without Adam, sin becomes no longer a matter of human fallenness, but just a matter of human givenness. Without Adam, sin is no longer a matter of human fallenness. It's just a matter of human givenness. In other words, sin just is around, just exists. It's just part of who we are. Okay? There was no actual fall in the beginning. It's just part of human nature, humanity. Okay, But you need to have a fall. You need to have an entrance of sin into the world. The Bible teaches that original sin came from our first father, Adam, and that we fell with him. Remember the picture of the giant? When the giant falls, we all fall with him. And that's what the Bible teaches. Through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. Or as one rabbi put it, when Adam sinned, we all cheered. When Adam sinned, we all cheered. We were all connected to him. We're all sinning with him, covenantally. We are sinners because of Adam, and we are guilty because of Adam. Take Adam away, and you need not worry about your sin or your guilt. No Adam, no human sin or guilt. And then third, no Adam, no gospel. Now, we normally say, no Jesus, no gospel. Okay? But think about how Paul speaks of Jesus. The second and last Adam, not the second and last Abraham, not the second and last Noah, not the second and last Melchizedek, not the second and last David, the second and last Adam, okay? But that only makes sense if there's a first Adam. You need Adam, the first Adam, for there to be a good news gospel to preach, Let me show you what I mean. No Adam, no gospel. The reason why belief in Adam is so important is because the whole gospel hangs on his existence and actions. That picture of the two giants on the belt, I got it from Thomas Goodwin, a Puritan, who said, in God's sight there are two men, Adam and Jesus Christ, and these two men have all other men hanging from their girdle strings. In God's sight, there are two men, Adam and Jesus Christ, and these two men have all other men hanging from their girdle strings. The New Testament calls Jesus, as I said, the second and last Adam because the whole structure of the gospel is founded on Adam. Jesus, the second and last Adam, came to undo what the first Adam did. What What Adam did was introduce into the world the realities of sin, guilt, and death as a penalty, but Take Adam away and there is no sin, guilt, and death as a penalty. And if there is no sin, guilt, and death as a penalty, then why did Jesus die? Ever thought of that? Why did he die physically? Why couldn't he have experienced spiritual death in the wilderness with God and his temptations? Paid for sin by a spiritual death. Why did he have to physically die? Well, because the first Adam brought physical death into the world. And just think about when Jesus died on the cross. Notice the similarities. He, di- he goes into the garden of Gethsemane. Then he dies just outside a garden. Aye. What does he die looking like? Naked. What was Adam made? Naked. Uh, he dies with a crown of thorns on his head. What did Adam bring into the world? Thorns and thistles. Do you see how the Bible is presenting us with Jesus on the cross as the second and last Adam? And when he dies on the cross, suspended between heaven and earth, what is happening to the earth? It is shaking with an earthquake. Why? Because this man is connected to the earth. He is from the earth. Okay? So there are so many connections between Jesus and Adam. And it's beautiful, it opens up the whole gospel to you, that here is a man, the true man, the perfect man, who has brought reconciliation with God. And what did the first Adam bring? After he sinned, he brought angels to the entrance to the Garden of Eden with a flashing sword, which meant the only way to get back to the tree of life was for Adam, another Adam, to go under the sword, to die, rise, and go and give us access to the tree of life. And that's what Jesus does. On the cross, the curtain temple is torn in two, and what is there embroidered on the curtain temple? Angels. And he parts the angels, and gives us access back into the presence of God. And so, you can see that without Adam, there is no gospel. Because the whole gospel is founded on this first Adam. And then Jesus is the second Adam who comes to do what the first Adam couldn't. Adam brought sin, guilt, and death. Jesus brings righteousness, justification, and resurrection life. So, I hope you can see the importance of Adam. I hope you can see uh, the beauty of the second and last Adam. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word, the Bible. We pray that you would give us strength, courage, and faith to believe it all, even in the midst of so much of modern science that seems to dispute it. We pray that we would hold it firmly as our final authority. And we pray also that you would show us the beauty of the gospel as we look at the first Adam and then as we see the second and last Adam even more beautiful as uh, we see the connection so we ask lord that you would strengthen our faith broaden our horizons and deepen our love for the lord jesus the second and last adam and we ask this in his name amen